Um, yeah, I have kind of a question related to the last portion of your talk last night on opening. And I just wanted to see kind of, I was understanding it, um, what you intended. But kind of the sense I got is that it it's, doesn't really matter kind of where we are on the path or how we think our practice is going because it's always about opening to this moment um, right here. And, and I guess in that sense even, like, I guess I understand it kind of is like the practice is forever and so even like the Buddha or someone who's reached enlightenment, like their practice would still be kind of in each moment um, and any time, any amount of time that they're spending thinking about their quality of enlightenment. Um, would actually be kind of assigning a concept or a story to their experience. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of, I was wondering if that's kind of what you intended. But yeah, that sounds about right. You know, uh, I don't know the experience of a fully awake person like the Buddha, as we imagine the Buddha is. But what I imagine, I mean, my imagination and what I understand from the teachings is that those people would continue basically doing the same thing. And that's definitely what's reported in the suttas, you know, that um, the Buddha continues to practice and the enlightened disciples of the Buddha continue to practice. But what I imagine is that that, you know, that entity or whatever, that person that is continuing to practice, that it's really, it's purely a movement of nature at that point. So the person isn't uh, the Buddha, for example, you know, isn't constructing the idea of a practitioner in their mind. Or if that idea arises in their mind, you know, like they're checking their practice and those constructs of being the practitioner checking their practice arises, that's also noticed as not me, not mine, just nature. So I think in that sense, what I heard you say sounds right, you know, that the process continues not so different as a practitioner like us, still getting identified with mental constructs, the thinking, and somebody, uh, an awakened person who's not getting identified. But the difference is that the friction that comes from identifying with being a practitioner or being a bad practitioner or being a good practitioner. So anywhere along that spectrum, any identification is some friction in the system of life or the system of being, an unnecessary friction that practice is designed to uproot that tendency to personalize the activity of life. But the activity of life will continue according to causes and conditions, regardless of whether one is what we call awake or one is not awake. There's still the activity of the personality, you know, as long as the body's alive and, you know, the conditions are right, then this activity of life will continue. That's why it's not, you know, we never really know where somebody is in their practice because outwardly 
there's not a lot you can tune into. I mean, there are some things, obviously, but you, you, know, you don't know with any certainty where people are at. Well, I think it's a harder, generally it's a harder practice. It's interesting because it seems easier. That's why we often gravitate to open attention practice because we don't have to direct our attention anywhere and it seems like a relief. But uh, exactly as you described well, Susan, you know, the mind is in the habit of creating activity, you know, to absorb into. So it will create a fantasy or a dream-like reality to absorb into or a problem to solve, or it will take up, generally it will take up some business, some busyness of mind to occupy itself. And that's the shadow of open attention practice. And because there's not a lot of structure to it, it's not so easy to catch that until the bell rings. Then we realize, oh, or something else gets someone sneezes. And then, oh, we realize, oh, I've been lost in thought. Um, so what I do, like when I'm formally doing open attention practice for a period of time, I'll see if I can ask questions. And of course, the questions we ask, they have to be done in the spirit of open attention. So they're not controlling questions at all, and they're not directing questions. They're questions that are in the spirit of just wanting to connect, just wanting to know what is arising, what is moving here. So they're just questions that help frame, oh yeah, this, this is what's being known. Um, and you almost have to make those questions, like you have to have a rhythm with them, like you're just going to do another question. Okay. What is this? Like if you don't know, if you don't have any obvious question, but what is this? Or what's being known? Okay. What's the mind doing? How's the mind? So it's just, you're kind of looking. and. And in particular, we're interested in the mind itself. Now, I often will also, like another strategy with open attention, but it, it, it's a little bit more like uh, an anchor practice, is I'll use hearing and the sound of silence. And the thing about the sound of silence, that background sound that some people can hear, is uh, it's not that... It's, it doesn't trigger a lot of conceptual thinking because it's really a neutral experience. It's profoundly neutral. You know, it doesn't really change much. It's just a shh sound. But uh, 
So in a way, it's useful with open attention practice because it gives some thing for that part of the mind that wants to connect and uh, wants to feel safe because it's connecting, it's grounding into something. So it gives that mind, it appeases that part of the conditioned mind because the mind feels like it's doing something, it's connecting. But it's not filling the mind with a lot of conceptual activity, cognitive activity, so that when cognitive activity does arise, it can be known. Now, it's a bit of a crutch because that sound of silence can be, it's very similar to a feeling of stillness. So it's a way for the mind to retreat into a tranquil place. So it's not real open awareness practice, which is not being defended in any way. We're not settling into stillness or going to stillness. And that, at least in my mind, maybe it's common with other people too, that when I'm aware of the sound of stillness or sound of silence, that my mind tends to go towards tranquility. Um, but I think just to accept that it's really challenging is okay, because then we don't have a problem with getting lost and coming back, because there may be a lot to learn in the being swept away, noticing the mind's been swept away, sort of. And how does the mind find stability, composure, without concentrating, without meditating? See, this is the thing. we. We don't want to create a mind that's dependent on meditation or on being a meditator meditating. So expect it to be a little bit all over the place, a little messy in the way that uh, we would judge it if it were a tranquility practice because we're caught here and we come back and then we're judging ourselves for having been lost and then we're noticing that. So it's a little bit like initially we're always a little bit behind the game where something's happening, we're lost in it, and then we know. Something happens, we're lost in it, and then we know. But that's okay, because uh, you know the mind is learning how to be free without using uh, self-centered strategies of control. And, uh, and what I like to do is just keep reminding myself that it's all nature. So whatever the mind does, and however the mind gets caught or un catches itself. It's just the movement of nature. The whole dance is just nature. And so not to personalize like whether it's a good open attention practice or not. But if you know, if you get lost and you don't realize it until the end of the sit, and that happens several times, then you might want to bring more structure into the practice. Like uh, you know, using if you have your eyes open but Another thing you can do is just the posture, like really, um, you know, it's an activity. It's a concentration practice to, to a degree where you're, you're working on the composure of the physical frame of the body as a symbol of the mind's intention to be clear, to be awake, to be right in the middle. And so, again, it can generate a lot of cognitive activity, but it's uh, the nice thing about that doing, you know, doing the posture, is uh, it does support, because the body and mind reflect each other, that composure and integrity of the, the posture, the frame, supports an honest, released being with experience. So that's another way to... 
And then I'll just throw in a third because we're going out into daily life, which is to do open attention practice with an activity like walking or washing the dishes because then you've got that as, as an anchor that helps ground. You can always absorb back into the activity, but it's, you know, so mo most of our activities are things we can do on automatic pilot, so we can always go more to the open attention, but when we're being thrown around or getting seduced and caught, then we can use the activity, the physical activity, to ground back into and back and forth between sort of not attending just to the activity, but opening to the whole, and then coming back to the physical activity and back and forth. And that would be mine, like I'm just picturing that, like washing the dishes with open awareness, and I can kind of intuit what that would be like. If I was being really skillful, that that would work well. But I can see if I was being really kind of dreamy, mm -hmm. that I'd like burn my hands off. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess that's your practice. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, just the fluency of the practice so that, uh, and for you and, and a lot of us, but for people who tend to absorb into things, like that's the nature of their mind to absorb into the meditation object or other experiences in their life then just to notice that tendency, like to be aware of that tendency and to understand the underlying impetus for that tendency. Like is it a seeking of safety that the mind likes to absorb into everything? Um, and then, so maybe in the open attention practice, we're highlighting the feeling of, of unsafety, you know, being unsafe. And we're, we're practicing not forgetting it. And by making peace with it in that way, then it undercuts the tendency to, to absorb into objects because the whole purpose was to hide from that feeling of being unsafe. But if we've put the unsafe feeling right front and center and we're not forgetting it, then we don't have any reason to absorb into a meditation object or an activity or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Anne? Um, this might be a little bit related to that, but... I'm starting to feel a bit of a marriage between uh, Qigong and meditation. And the feeling of uh, the breath being a an, um, an object of suspension, like a floating, a floating uh, presence. And in this awareness, I start to feel as though that nothing is still at all. Uh, even even sitting is not a still activity. So I guess my question is, is there such a thing as, as stillness? And does the Buddha say that there is? Like, is that even, is that concept even hold any water? <laughs> yeah, that's a good... That's a good Buddhist question. And actually, it's a, it's a good Buddhist question because it's a, a wonderful contemplation. Like, not to immediately uh, feel like you got to get an answer, but just to have that question, is there some, you know, like part of it is uh, letting the insight mature that everything is moving, right? Really let that, and keep checking, you know, is that really true? It seems like it's true. Is it really true? So in your experience, in your mind, external, internal, is it true that everything is moving? Keep 
checking that, keep checking that. And then in the background, the question, you know, is there anything that's not moving? You know, as you see everything moving, is there anything that's not moving? So as an intellectual answer, you can say that the knowing isn't moving. What's being known is moving. Or there's something, uh, the space in which everything is moving isn't moving. But that's just an intellectual answer to support the holding the question, like to really... Uh, to really acknowledge your perception, your experience that everything is moving, and but to stay open to the possibility that something's not moving, and and to allow the interest in what isn't moving to grow. Because part of the whole practice is abandoning refuges that aren't really refuges anyway, and realizing a refuge that is a refuge. And it's... Uh, if we talk about it, if we describe it, then we conceptualize the refuge. It becomes a cognitive activity which isn't a refuge. You know, it's another one of those things that's moving, that's coming and going, whatever description or whatever idea we have about it. But it's the process of investigation itself that's really useful here. So I would just keep doing what you're doing, and really it was noticing. The body that I was noticing, maybe it wasn't. But, but the space was moving. Yeah, so just, and just keep, like, just maintain some humility that maybe we haven't seen everything and get interested in space moving if that's your experience. Like, what is that movement of space and where is it happening, that movement of space? Yeah, Corey. I was thinking about the, the, kind of the difference between concentration practice and open attention practice. And, you know, practicing open attention and then and then kind of needing an anchor, and then it's not a far cry from using the anchor as an object of concentration. And so I was wondering if that's just a, a distinction, like a convention that you use for the time being, if eventually there is no difference between concentration and open attention, if that kind of Ideally, I think that's the case. Where, or you could say that they, yeah, they come together. So, as a concentration practice, this is the object of concentration. But, but, but no, no boundaries. So this is all inclusive. This is the object of concentration, and uh, so then that is open awareness practice. You know, where everything is included, no preferences in the mind. So the mind is just that mirror-like essence reflecting or knowing it's like this. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the direction we go. And when we do a more formal samadhi practice or concentration practice, it's because it's healing in so many different ways and creates a lot of safety and can resolve a lot of psychological, you know, imbalances in the, in the body and mind and develop a lot of confidence. And uh, then that allows us to hang out in the unformed a lot more. And hanging out in the unformed, this is sort of what I was pointing to for you, Anne. The more we hang out in the unformed, which is characterized by movement, you know, just everything's moving, there, uh, you could say the 
the fearlessness or the non-grasping is an entity in a way. So it's like that in a sense, the the non-grasping, the non-resistance to the movement of all things is in a way an anchor. And I think this must be what the Buddha points to with terms like Nibbana. You know, it's the, uh, like Ajahn Chah says, it's the reality of non-grasping. That's the refuge. That's That reality of non-grasping is what the mind trusts. And then it's what allows the mind to be free and skillful in the, in the movement of all things. So, yeah, I think that's the marriage. And that's why it's good to, even though it's messy, to begin to play with open attention practice, even if it's just five or ten minutes at the end of a sit, and, uh, and to pursue uh, concentration practice because uh, it's, we learn so much about the mind in doing that practice. And it creates the conditions for successfully doing the open attention practice in a more... Uh, in a more free way. We should probably leave it here. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.